You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. Hey, what's up? Before you listen, I have a quick request from you. While you're over here listening, go ahead on down, give us a rating and a review, especially if you're on Apple Music. Let us know how much you appreciate what we bring, the conversation, the dialogue. Tell us how it supports you. Give us that good five star. We appreciate you. and welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it is amazing to see you here where you're challenged to examine your beliefs, question your predisposed notions, and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here to get the dialogue going. So it is 2021 and it is not 2020, however, uh, mm, I, I'm still not sure the, the, the verdict is out on that. We'll, we'll figure that out. However, it was amazing to be able to watch the inauguration. And as I'm recording this, that was uh, last week. And to be able to see that there were some amazing firsts that happened with the first woman that is a vice president, the first black woman that is the vice president and the first South Asian black woman that is in the White House and she is black and she is South Asian and she's a black South Asian woman. All of those things. And she's amazing. Makes Kamala Harris amazing. So I'm extremely excited to know that 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 has happened. And I like Joe Biden. He's still a politician. So there's that. However, um, being able to know that I can turn my TV on and hear somebody that puts together whole sentences with a capital in the front and some type of punctuation. I'll take that. I'm okay with that right now. Small, small wins, small wins. And so the fact that that didn't mean that everything else that has happened using the coup at the Capitol as an example, those things didn't just go away. And yet right now I will take this small moment of calm to be able to just take that as what it is. The reality though, is that those of us that do uh, DEI work, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and those of us that are working with someone that does that, we also know that the work doesn't stop. And the interesting part about it is that we have people that uh, we work with here, whether it's myself or India and I through Pause on a Play, uh, people that are in our uh, Pause on a Play, the community that are not U.S. based. However, there are definitely pieces of the conversation that I think sometimes kind of get left out because there are some differences of what anti-racism is running up against in the U.S. and abroad. These are not all the same things. Now, I always go back to what I've heard people say in that the U.S. sneezes, everybody catches a cold. And so we may set the stage, but it's not all about us. And so being that there are differences in what shows up and what the needs are in different places, as well as how you serve people just within the DEI space, because we don't all do the same thing. If you have never heard this before and maybe aren't fully aware of it, I'm going to let you know that if someone does anti-racism or DEI work, they're not a monolith. They are not, oh, you do this, great. It's not that simple. We don't all do the same exact thing. We don't all do it in the same way. And we're not all addressing the same needs. It doesn't just come in one flavor. That's not how this goes. And so being able to figure that out, I think there's a lot of value there. And it also means that you have to be clear on what you come to us for and what it is that you are seeking in coming to us. What do you need? You can't just ignore it. 
And so with that, I felt like this is not a conversation that I could have on my own. So I brought in somebody that I immensely, immensely love. She's awesome. And she's goddamn amazing at what she does. Miss Kay Fabella, how are you today? Oh, man, that is a great intro. And I, <laughs> I honestly, I'm sitting here and I had to mute myself because I just kept going, mm-hmm, yes, you tell them, Erica. Yes, you tell them. Um, <laughs> I'm feeling real good coming into this conversation. I'm super excited. Thank you for having me on Pause on the Play. Thank you for being here. I, again, like I have known you now for Oh gosh, I feel like it's been like thirteen thousand years, but we're <laughs> thirteen thousand years. That was twenty twenty. <laughs> I know, right? And 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 very shortly it'll be it'll be you know a year. And I have immensely enjoyed you as a human being, and at the same time, I enjoyed what you did and how you do it even before I knew you. And so this is where I would love for you to introduce the listeners to exactly what it is you do and how you do it. Who is Kay Fabella? Absolutely. Oh, identity questions. Good place to start for pause on the play. Um, But yes, as you said, Erica, my name is Kay Fabella. I am originally from Los Angeles, California. I am a daughter of Filipino immigrants. And I like to joke that immigration is genetic because I have since immigrated myself to Madrid, Spain, where I'm recording this conversation and where I've called home now for going on my 11th year, which is just mind boggling. Yeah. (laughs) Good chunk of time here. Um, Long story short of how I physically ended up here. I'd studied abroad here in undergrad, absolutely fell in love with the country, decided I would find a way back found a way back. And this time I fell in love with a Spaniard who is now my husband and partner, uh, Javi. And so we now live in Madrid with our two cat rescues and we speak Spanglish as our official language of the house. And our cats are forever confused, which is just supposed to show you like what my day to day looks like. Honestly, um, cats really got us through quarantine. That's all I'm going to say. And in terms of the work that I do, so how I lead is from this idea of multi-hyphenate inclusion. And so I loved that you led with the example of Kamala Harris, who I'm not going to lie, I cried so many tears of joy. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You had no idea how much you needed to cry until you watched something that brought you joy and the floodgates opened. All of them open. I'm not, I'm not even going to lie. I went through at least a tissue box full just for inauguration. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and honestly, I what I love about it is, so when I refer to multi-hyphenates, I refer to people who don't necessarily occupy one clean, clear-cut identity box. And, you know, very much like Kamala, like she's a Black woman, she's a South Asian woman. She is also a second-generation daughter of immigrants like myself, you know, um, from, you know, a Jamaican father and an Indian mother. And there's so much, I think, when you have all of these different hyphens of experiences that I used to for a long time really struggle with the fact that my story was nonlinear, meaning that I was, you know, I wasn't fully Filipino because as a daughter of immigrants, I didn't grow up speaking the language. And so I really struggled whenever we did manage to go back to the Philippines with being a ABF, an American born Filipina, or some people would call me a Twinkie, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, we eat our own, don't we? <laughs> oh my god. Well, cuz as a kid, I remember the Oreo thing, black on the outside, white on the inside. Yeah, and it's so interesting how we, you know, weaponize the difference even amongst ourselves in our own communities. Um, and we try to pal- to- make it palatable by making it about food. We try to <laughs> Yeah. Right? Exactly. It's so funny. Yeah, I come, yep, Oreo Twinkie. I mean, honestly. <laughs> Right. It's like, wait, connection. <laughs> when you said it, I was like, oh, why do we make everything like, cause it's a way to try to make it sound like, oh, it's just kind of funny. It's like, no, that is harmful and problematic AF. We don't do that. Yeah, we don't do that. And, and that's exactly what I mean. Right. Like you don't even realize that all of these identity boxes that, you know, outwardly are used to, in theory, promote inclusion and equity within our workplaces and how we report are actually also holding back the very communities that are struggling for that visibility and that equality because we're using them as standards to judge one another. 
And so what I think is so powerful about how my own story has evolved and now it leads into the work that I do is because I know how much more valuable I could be as a human when I was no longer boxed into the identity that somebody assigned to me, whether it was my own community or a majority community, or say, for example, being here as an immigrant in in Spain, and how much more power there is when you're allowed to have people break out of boxes and see each other as the multiple hyphens that make up their identities, the whole person that makes up who they are. And I just think there's, you know, it allows us to hold space for two or more truths about a person so much more um, agile-ly. <laughs> I just realized that's probably not a word. Um, it is but, today. Okay, it we'll make today. it a word. <laughs> <laughs> With so much more agility and so much more grace and so much more, I think, kindness and understanding because you're seeing multiple truths in the other person and their full humanity the same way you would want to be seen for that as well. And so that's how I lead. And that's how I, that's the approach and lens that I bring to this work. And I think there's also this piece of, as you mentioned at the top of this conversation, there, we realized how we were lacking in resources when everybody came flooding for us after the death of George Floyd right? Yes. We also realized, at least from this side of the pond, kind of the U- outside of the U.S. looking inward, how many companies were struggling with their own employees wanting to have these conversations about race and inequity and didn't have the culturally contextual appropriate materials or resources or facilitators that they needed to have these healing conversations and how much more room there is for those subtlety and new those subtleties and nuances that the work needs to be carried with for it to deepen as we move out of 2020 and into 2021. So yeah, that's the right. conversation that I lead with. Well, and the interesting part about it is what you mentioned, I think is an important part in that there are a lot of layers to it. And at the same time, I think that there are those pieces that are different because you're seeing where companies or businesses um, don't have what they need. Um, And at the same time, there are these differences of how they're willing to have these conversations or not, because the way that that conversation is or is not happening, I think is a huge part of it. Now, part of it obviously is the upfront piece of like, I work more with um, smaller businesses um, and in a lot of cases, individuals and kind of solopreneurs for you, it is companies. And yet I don't know that either one of us necessarily see a larger amount of truly wanting to be engaged in it and saying, yeah, I want this and raising their hand wholeheartedly like, yes, let's fix this. I think we're both seeing these people that are like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. And part of me even wants to, maybe part of the team does, but Oh man, what's going to happen when you come in here? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely see. And, and it's, you know, in much larger companies, there's still silos, right? Like there's still places where, I don't know, I just realized, like, what I found is that, you know, the people who really want to roll up their sleeves and do the work are actually struggling to do so because they're worried about, being called out or saying the wrong thing or even knowing where to start to engage in the conversation. And the people who want to lead the conversation often find that most of their resources around how to talk about things like race or sexual orientation or gender are very US DEI focused. And that even within, for example, you know, I mentioned on a a podcast episode that we did comparing in very broad strokes, you know, DEI in the U.S. versus Europe from my observations being here for the last over a decade that I've been in the work. And it's honestly, for example, like the U.K. as one country within the European continent and how BIPOC or BIPOC in the US, the more closely associated version of that within the UK is BAME, which is Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic, and how a lot of that conversation is actually led by South Asians because of the, um, the history of colonialism in the country. And so it's just really interesting how now there's even a resistance to that 
term and the reckoning that they've had in the wake of everything that happened in 2020 of what does that mean for us as a community? Is this a label that we still want to embrace? Is it one that we want to reject? And if so, what are we going to replace it with so that we actually start to have deeper conversations about how race and systemic racism affects each of our different communities? And so, yeah, even though you're a New York headquartered company or a San Francisco headquartered company, that language around DEI first of all, is not necessarily going to translate seamlessly. It's not, well, nothing translates seamlessly in DEI, let's be real. No. Um, but then on top of that, there's an additional layer of a cultural context and a cultural readiness of how you have the conversations. Because even within the UK, in addition to the race conversation, it's so intrinsically linked to colonialism and class. And that offers a whole other layer of emotions. And again, like, if this is one country and one conversation as part of a global team, you know, how are you going to, as a company, meaningfully leverage tools, systems, resources, and opportunities for behavioral change for your team so that they actually connect when you're trying to do this one size fits all idea of let's copy and paste what we know we're already talking about in the U S in terms of terminology and just hope that it sticks when it lands in, you know, other parts of the world. And it, we're finding that just clearly isn't the case. The interesting thing that I think comes up when you start to talk about terminology and just the linguistics of it as a whole is that, um, and, 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 and I do think that when you compare BIPOC to um, BAME and how there, there are the differences in kind of what is culturally recognized in these different places, but it's also the fact that I feel like as soon as we do it, wait, let's throw another letter on it. Let's just throw it all out. We don't do it. No, lowercase that part. No, that has to be italicized. Like we go in and we immediately change it. And so I think it actually also draws back to the point of where some people struggle because they're like, this is set up. And as soon as it gets set up, I'm now going to get canceled because I'm a week late of realizing that, wait a minute, the, the, the finish line got moved again and I have somehow screwed up. And so I think for some people, they can use that as an excuse to not do it, but it also becomes a way of having to acknowledge that it is not so linearly simple to be simply do this, say this, behave this way. And for those that don't really want to do the work and to put that effort in to unlearn and relearn and, and reprogram, these just become roadblocks. They become the speed bumps that you're like, oh yeah, I don't have to do it because this is going to be too hard and I'm going to get it wrong. So never mind. But I think that it's important because it's not up to you to decide how someone else should feel about the language that you feel comfortable using. Absolutely. And I think there's also a piece when we're looking, now there's even a whole conversation happening within the DEI space. And, you know, as you know, in larger companies, that tends to fall under some kind of thing with human resources or talent development or talent acquisition or really mm -hmm. this sort of compliance driven, metrics driven idea of DEI, which is why I think the focus for a long time got stuck on the diversity piece and not yes. the work of inclusion. And now you're seeing this conversation happening about, well, DEI necessitates discomfort. DEI right. necessitates risk-taking. And that it goes, in many cases, in complete opposition to a lot of the compliance-driven initiatives that are led by a human resources department. And so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I was, because as, as soon as you said that in my head, I'm like, yeah, because it's easier to compartmentalize it into being... ROI or numbers or compliance exactly. or something that is very co concrete and cold and again, simple, like, no, we, we can equate it to that and we can figure it out. It's exactly. Not, and not figure now we're trying to figure out where those two things fit, right? Like, are they, right. you know, how are they going to work in conjunction with each other? Because ultimately the risk and the discomfort and what really is taking care of the humans and the people that we are supposedly are in our charge as companies right. need to also be looked after in a different way. That's not necessarily going to be one size fits all. There's not going to be 
the right answer right away. There's, it's more about if DEI is supposed to be creating these spaces for collaboration as well as compassionate collision, what is the new role of HR or what is the new role of where does that fit in a company's larger, larger structure? And so that's been a really interesting conversation that I'm seeing happening. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how it plays out, honestly. So as we're going through this, again, you did have a whole podcast episode, which we're having a link back to in the show notes as well. Um, and you did talk about some of the differences that you tend to encounter versus what I think people assume is kind of standard here. And so therefore we have this um, misconception that this is the norm for everyone with how DEI works. And so can you share some of those things that really stand out to you that make practicing DEI different um, in Spain and more for like a, a UK type of base versus here in the US? Definitely. So, and I love that we're having this conversation because I think I've even gotten pushback on my podcast before of my conversation around DEI being too US focused. And so it's really good to represent the different voices that want to be heard and want to lead the conversation. So my my main things that I've noticed from living here is, and the first is really around when it comes to racial and ethnic diversity, how I would say there is a massive gap in how Europeans see their role in, in how systemic racism came to be. I mean, obviously within the US, we talk about you know, 1619, the 400 years, we, we know that it's so present. And if anything, 2020 blew that wide open for people who may have been able to conveniently ignore it for a long time. But what I found was really interesting is that Spain, you know, folks that I know in the UK, other parts of Europe, you know, friends that I've come to know over the years and my colleagues that I work with have really not made the connection between who had the guns and ships first that could carve up the planet that then led to the systemic racism that we have today. And a lot of those things aren't taught in history books. That's why you saw things like Brexit, because there was this whole idea of like, we want to take back our land from people. It's like, well, why do you think these people came in the first place? (laughs) Right. You know, why did they come to immigrate to your country if they didn't already have citizenship as part of, you know, the largest global empire? I mean, we look at, I'm a massive fan of The Crown on Netflix. (laughs) I've heard it's amazing. It is on the list. Oh, it is beautifully shot. And what I want to point out there is, aside from the fact that the casting is phenomenal and I just, it's so sumptuous and and just gorgeously stylized, is that the, the, the current Queen of England went from ruling the largest empire, British empire that covered more than half the globe, to you know, having one of her grandsons marry a biracial woman in her lifetime. And I think we don't make that connection in terms of, you know, this, not just that this is an Asian history, but also what is the larger role of, you know, Dutch colonists, uh, British colonists, uh, Spanish colonists, and how we're still dealing with the ramifications in places today of, systemic racism, colorism, and who gets access to power and who doesn't. And so I think that's a really big thing that I've noticed is having the conversation around race, you know, on the, and the best case scenario is, oh, I didn't realize that, or I hadn't heard about that before when they land on something like my podcast. And I talk about these conversations and the worst case scenario is like, well, that's ancient history and race is really a a problem in the U S and not here because look how multicultural we are in the European union or in our teams, or in our company. And it's just really interesting to see that dichotomy, and it mainly comes down to education and the stories that are told about Europe's colonial past. That's a really big one that I've noticed. Um, And then I would also say that racism has a different meaning in Europe versus the US. So what I thought was really interesting was when Black Lives Matter protests started to come over to here in Spain, here in well on this side of the pond and really spread across the world and just how powerful that movement was and the call for change was 
I started to have conversations with some of my friends here who were, again, of all different backgrounds, of all different cultures, etc. And I found that, you know, the way that we define racism, because it's so intrinsically linked with colorism in the, in the U.S., we don't remember that race is, as a social construct predated in, in many cases a lot of the a lot of the conversations that we're having right now about anti-black racism specifically because you know if i talk to my polish friends or eastern european friends they'll describe what they've experienced as racism people who are you know of the roma population or the gypsy population in here in europe who have, are still dealing with massive human rights violations call what they experience racism. Even some Spaniards or Italians or Greeks who are in the Southern European, you will say region or contingent versus their Northern European counterparts experience what, they, what they've dealt with as some version of racism or the Irish. I mean, we know historically the Irish have had it really, like mm-hmm. even upon landing in the US had a terrible, terrible time and dealt with racism as well. And so, it's been really interesting to have these conversations and even from my American lens and as a practitioner who's constantly learning about cultural context to have to challenge what race for me is within the priorities of that conversation and right. not really wanting to dishonor the what is happening, what is present, which is anti-Black racism, which is something that is front and center and should continue to be because let's face it, long overdue conversation. But to honor that conversation while at the same time honor the person's experience in front of me is really important. So I have to contextualize when I'm speaking to people who would say, oh, yes, I've also experienced racism. Maybe the knee-jerk reaction of somebody with a U.S. lens would be to, oh, but that's not really racism because da-da-da-da-da. It's more of, okay, I understand what you've experienced is this. The conversation that we're currently having is around, we'll say, the colorism conversation with or sub-conversation within racism and that's why we're having we're we're seeing the protests of black lives matter so it's not to say that your experience is different or less worthy or less valid because obviously you know slavery genocide racism you know all of these power over complexes that will say Europe invented generations before we even existed as a country right. um, are still having to be reckoned with, but have to be reckoned with without it feeling, you know, for me as a facilitator that I have all the answers because I also have to be challenged as someone who's still learning about the history of the place that she lives. Right. And so that's another really, really big piece. And I would say the last big difference is around, you know, how we talk about diversity, I would say I look to all of y'all across the pond for what's to come because it's so present in your society. You know, in our society as Americans, it's so front and center now in the conversations and definitely after 2020. And I would say that because discomfort and a lot of, we'll say, patriarchal or grounded in white supremacy dynamics of how we approach conversation in the workplace that stemmed from and originated from many things here in Europe, there's still so much more to go in terms of the evolution of the DEI journey, that it's like the aperture maybe over out in the U.S. is so much wider because it's so, so tangible and so visible. And here it's, it's minuscule by comparison. And so how do you, you know, translate that cross-culturally and honor the urgency of the problem that we have at hand. So it's just, those are kind of broad strokes. Again, I'm one person with one lens who is based in one country and does, I'll do a lot of work with global teams, but I think it's important to remember there's other sides to this. And I hope that's something that listeners take away from it. So, so first of all, Yes, and thank you, because I think all that, all that you said is is important and, and very valid, particularly the fact that, and these are, these are some of the main things I think that, that, that popped out with outstanding that with the, everything that you just mentioned is a, is a, could be a whole conversation on its own. Like each individual piece could be a whole conversation, but I feel like just going through the fact of like history is not a collectively accurate 
tool to figure out what happened to be able to figure out where we are. Because I know there's a lot of people that are like, well, let's just deal with where we are. Yes, but we have to also understand so we don't keep repeating the same things and not having, you know, consistently and freely clearly communicated information on what something is and why it is that way and what can be done to change it is a huge piece. I think the entire concept of questioning what your normal is, that entire reconsidering your normal piece that I talk about a lot uh, is, is important because when you do this one way, and you have one frame of reference that is yours and you teach through this one limited lens and it takes so very little to derail that by somebody giving you something that has screwed up the whole formula the minute that you, they open their mouths. That's a fragility of your base that I think is not okay. And there has to be that space of being willing to say, I don't know everything. My goal is not to know everything. My goal is to continue to know more because knowing everything is is an impossible feat. And there's very few things that I'm going to say is impossible. And I'm going to say that is because, again, everybody has their own points of reference. They have their own experiences and being able to acknowledge what they are in this particular conversation, in this context with these particular people that are included. I think it's important to acknowledge how important that is in any job, let alone something that is really about dismantling things that prohibit people from being able to be be well in all ways, you know, being well fed, being well well nourished of the soul, you know, being well protected, you know, being well educated, being well employed, any of those things. And so it's important to acknowledge that everybody has something different that they're bringing and you have to be open to understanding that and bringing that into the conversation. And I think that when that urgency comes up, what can happen is people will miss the fact that, in my opinion, the work that we do can very often be based in contradictions because of the fact it can't be fully one thing at all times for all people. And so I actually want your opinion on it. Do you believe that what we do um, in a number of ways really is massively conflicted because you're trying to do this, but someone else is like, wait, what about me? Exactly. I, I think, again, like I, I keep coming back to this idea of humans are contradictions. Humans are, mm-hmm. you know, multiple hyphens and multiple things I mean you know from day to day like if you'd spoken to me an hour before when I'm in like food coma mode post late Spanish lunch I'm not (laughs) the same person as I am now and I'm allowed to be all of those hyphens and all of those things and I think it's just honoring that in the spaces that we create whether it's in our workplaces in our businesses and even just our day-to-day interactions about how we interact with people it's honoring that person's humanity And that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to agree all the time. How could you when, and I know you and I are both fans of using the matrix. I mean, we just geeked out about this before all of this started. (laughs) (laughs) But I, you know, if we're all inserted into our own version of the matrix, how could we possibly expect to see eye to eye all the time? And it's what we do as DEI practitioners, as facilitators, as people who are coming at the work from different maybe personal entry points, but really with the same goal of I'm trying to help you create a container where the same way that you want your full humanity to be seen in all of its flaws and imperfections and, you know, different states of food coma or whatever, you know, I want you to be able to interact with other people in front of you from whatever background, ability, age, race, culture of origin, language of origin, passport, you know, lived experience. And whether that's a a collaborative moment or a collision moment, you feel safe to show up as yourself, as do they. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so this is where I actually think it makes perfect sense to go into something else that I think is important to kind of go into being that again, DEI is DEI is DEI is what people would love to think. And it's not. It is absolutely not. And so I would love for you to be able to, you know, kind of 
and I've, I've been trying to find a replacement for rapid fire because that term just kind of bugs me for a reason that I have yet to figure out, but it feels very like firing squad and I don't like it, but <laughs> I was like, I feel like I know where you're going with that. And yes, it does, right. it does make me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know what it, I'm like, dang it, what is it? But um, I would love to kind of in the, in the theme of rapid fire, but not rapid fire, what are some of the things that you think, um, make you and the way that you work with clients different? Because I do think that it's important to acknowledge that a lot of the conversations that we're having, even if they're on a different scale, there's the context may be different. A lot of the, the, the base notes of it and these nuances that we're trying to unravel, they are very similar. But I think with that, it is important to acknowledge that what you do and what I do, being able to, you know, really clearly frame some of those differences can really kind of make people a little bit more understanding and aware of what do I need or where am I, or what does this, what does this actually mean? Yeah, definitely. Oh goodness. Um, I would say for me, there is an intrinsic nature of being in the middle that informs my work. And when I say in the middle, here's, here's a couple of, of things for context. So I, I always think it's funny that as somebody who is now, we'll say culturally Filipino, American, passport holder, Spanish resident, I found a sh an easy shorthand as a millennial who loves her emojis and her gifts to stick in those three flags that I feel represent my story on LinkedIn. And so if you find and connect with me at Kate Favela, you can find the American flag, the Filipino flag, and the Spanish flag all in one. And I've gotten a couple of comments before of like, oh, that's really cute. That's really catchy for your name. You're like, yeah, it's cute. That's how I've you know, figured out a way to reduce my shorthand uh, or trying to create a shorthand rather of an identity crisis that I've had my entire life of being in the middle in all of these places. Right. And I think that also translates to even just how I see the privilege and bias conversation, because as somebody who for a very long time, so I'm Asian American, I fall into, we'll say the model minority group. And I, I really dislike that term, but it's just how you know, we've been set up within American society in terms of how to have the race conversation. And it often right. hits us against other groups of color because we're held on a pedestal of like, here's what happens when you keep your head down and don't talk about it and blah, 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 blah. And we'll, you, we'll end up being, or we end up being or striving for what our colleague Michelle Kim terms as, you know, white adjacency. Yes. Yes. Right. And so- I would say that for a very long time, I benefited from white adjacency and strived for it. And so I'm very comfortable in moving in majority white spaces because that is how I learned to survive without realizing that that's what I was doing. Until such time, I was made aware of my race <laughs> and the fact that it doesn't matter how much you strive for white adjacency, you will never be fully white. And coupled with the fact that now as somebody who's based here in Spain, where immigration is much will say much more recent and they're coming off of the back end of an isolationist dictatorship that lasted for 50 years. And immigrants are still being boxed into categories that aren't necessarily in their favor. And so here I'm just Chinese and you can imagine what that looked like with coronavirus and walking around outside oh. and what I've had to deal with in the street as well. So I've been on both sides of the privilege conversation which means that I am somebody who understands intimately because I've had to operate and absorb a lot of behaviors in spaces where you can live in a bubble to think that the world really is a meritocracy and that, you know, there is no real room for, you know, having conversations around equity because, hey, if you just roll up your sleeves and work, you buy into this narrative mm -hmm. because you're in that version of the matrix. And I know it so deeply while at the same time, having to undo a lot of those things as now a practitioner myself, as I've gotten older and have moved abroad and now see things through different lenses, to know how to honor that space of the journey, but also know intimately what it's like to be on the other side of somebody judging you for the box that they've placed you in unfairly. Right. And so I think that that informs my work because no matter what, I'm always capable of seeing where you are and where you could be. 
I'm always capable of seeing, you know, this is how one message translates in a particular cultural context. And here's how it needs to be not watered down, but maybe micro stepped out. So that maybe instead of one through five, we'll give you one and two for this particular cultural context because of where they are in their DEI maturity journey. And I think that's how I always approach things is the understanding of, I may not be able to change all of your minds, but if I can insert a lens into how you see others, that isn't necessarily judging them for the first thing that you see. And at the very least, acknowledging that we're we're more than the boxes that we put other people in, then I've done my work. And hopefully that starts you along the journey. And whether that's through systemic interventions, working with larger companies, either through talent acquisition or through how they recruit minorities or their retention strategies through learning and development, I can do that in a systemic way or I can do it in a behavioral way by actually sitting with you and facilitating whatever that journey is that you need to undertake to be a better leader, teammate and professional. Can I tell you that the reason that I love your answer is because of the fact that it wasn't just based in the tangible. I do this and this is how I work. It was based in, I can't do anything the way that I do it or otherwise, if I don't acknowledge how I show up, what is the body and set of learned language and experiences and lenses that I'm using to quantify and to digest this work and then be able to say, okay, well, this is, this is where we are. This is what we have, or this is what I suggest, or this is, this is the next step. Because so often it is separated who and how we are and what we do. And I think that there are some industries where maybe that's possible. What we do, it is not possible at all. Who Mm -hmm. and how we are is absolutely directly and inextricably tied to the way that we show up and choose to do any of our diversity, equity, and inclusion work separately or combined. Because, and and this is where I think, you know, you have to find somebody that's a good fit for you because you're going to spend a lot of time with them and you have to be very vulnerable with them. So you need to find somebody that does work for you. But you have to understand that this person and who they are is going to inform what they do. And then in turn, you have to remember that that means this is not a simple ROI or very like, it's not a standardized business task, mm-hmm. large or small. And I think it's so important to really acknowledge that and to lead with that and bring that out because people don't always think about it that way. Sometimes when that urgency comes up, it's just that rush to <laughs> choose someone. And it's like, since who you want to work with for the next six to 12 months or possibly the next few years of your life in some of these cases, if we're honest about it and you really are dedicated to it, is this who you want to be with? Because let's be honest. Sometimes we spend more time at work with people than we do at home. So I feel like that's important. I feel like people need that. <laughs> Absolutely. That action bias is real. Just like choose somebody and fix it and, you know, run to the fire. And yeah, mm-hmm. I completely get that. And I think it's also the reason why I love that you pointed that out in my answer. This is supposed to be a rapid fire question. It's clearly not rapid. No, um, but, <laughs> no, but you gave a holistic and very necessary answer. And you are reminding people that who we are does precede and preclude how we do the work that we do and the results that we get or, uh, you know, what can I help you do? Before you can get there, you you do need to kind of have a better understanding of who I am. Absolutely. And also what your goals are with actually leading into this work, because it's really nice to slap on a diversity, equity, inclusion statement and put it on, you know, your company's website or your CEO's LinkedIn profile or whatever it is that you're announcing to the world as your commitment, which is great. That's an amazing first step. And you also have to consider what are the different strategies for how I want to get there? When it com- when it came to everything that happened with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, the voices that need to be centered in that conversation were how do we create healing spaces for our Black employees? Maybe you need an anti-racist facilitator to have that conversation. When you're talking about LGBTQ visibility issues in the workplace, people who don't feel comfortable being being out as themselves. Maybe you need to find a facilitator who's well-versed in those issues. 
Or maybe you're looking at how do we, we have ambitious goals for how we want to set up our pipelines in the future for creating more gender diversity at work. Then maybe you need to work with somebody who's more systems oriented or maybe is, you know, gifted with words for their employer branding so that you, they position you as the go-to company reputation wise that also matches the actions that you're taking systemically to redesign how your company operates for when those women join your workforce. There are so many different, it's, we're a Swiss army knife, really. Like, it's oh my not gosh. just the fact that. <laughs> that, yes, that, that's it. That mental picture, I was like, that's the thing I've been looking at. That. I love you. The See? Swiss army knife. Yes. <laughs> I adore you too. <laughs> oh, because all of these tools that do all of these things, and some of them do things that they weren't even actually designed to do, but that's the perfect thing for that task at that moment in that situation. And that's what people need to understand. Exactly. Exactly. So decide, first of all, what's the vision that's aligned with your company and what it is that you would want to achieve that is equity and inclusion and, you know, by consequence of that diversity in your organization, and then work backwards in terms of not just centralizing the overall strategy, but looking for how you break that up into micro actions and micro steps and either look for it internally or look externally for a consultant or a partner or a facilitator or a systems designer or whoever it happens to be to help you achieve each of those goals bit by bit, because this is a long haul thing. And whatever path you decide that's right for you and is aligned with your organization's vision, make sure that you're partnering with the right person at the right time to help you achieve whatever that micro step is. Absolutely. And honestly, one of the last things I want to make sure I kind of lead us toward the closing is that you have to kind of know the why, you know, that goal, that purpose. And I feel like a lot of people, again, with that urgency, they just get into it because they feel like this is what they should be doing. This is the responsible thing. This is the ethical thing. And not having your why, that that entire purpose of, of what all of this is for, really does have you just kind of chasing your tail. And it will have you putting in effort, but yet not really understanding why it's not getting you there because there is no clarity on why you want to be there, why it matters. And so therefore you cannot put an expectation on any practitioner or professional to to get you to a destination that you don't even clearly know where you're going, why you want to be there. Amen. (laughs) Taking me to church again, Erica. That's what I do. Let the church say amen. That's the plate. So before we go, I want to make sure that you share with everyone where they can find you and where they can learn more about you. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you again for having me on this conversation. It is a privilege to be here alongside so many people who I admire and are doing this work, including yourself. So thank you. Thank you. And yeah, so if people want to get in touch, they can find me on my website. It's K-A-Y. F is in Frank, A, B is in boy, E-L-L-A.com. Or if you're listening to the podcast while you're on a run, you don't have a pen, it's Fab Ella, K Fab Ella. You can find me there. Makes it easy. And you can also listen to conversations that I'm having as well, insights that we're sharing on our podcast called Inclusion in Progress. And we're sharing international perspectives, we're sharing practitioners within companies, longtime practitioners as well, who've been leading this work in different ways. And last but not least, if you want to learn a bit more about where we see the future of work going, you can download our spring 2020 white paper on the future of work culture, which was based off of our findings from a roundtable we hosted with companies like Amazon and Google and Tesla and a couple others. And you can see why if you aren't already on the DEI train, you have some stats now to actually make your case to whoever needs to listen. So you can download that on our website as well. Again, thank you so much, Kay, for coming and having this conversation because I think we talked about a lot of things in a short amount of time and I think it was extremely necessary and I think everybody will benefit from it. So thank you for coming to play in my sandbox. Thank you for having me in your sandbox. It's a great sandbox to be in. Just glorious. Yeah. (laughs) This is another one of those times when you're able to hear what happens, when you can keep the dialogue going way beyond the surface. And 
Kay is someone that, again, as a human, I think she's amazing. As a professional, I think she's amazing. And being able to exist in both of those spaces with her is is something that I greatly appreciate, knowing that I have someone that if I needed to talk shop, so to speak, there's someone that gets it. And yet at the same time, she's human. And I love that. And it, it means so much to me. And there's something that is so important about knowing that you can be human with someone. And we don't always have that. And being able to know that you can drop the facade and know that like it's safe and you can talk and you're going to be, you know, represented and protected and not ostracized. And yeah, it's just something that I find so powerful. And you always hear me say, keep the dialogue going. And it's not just a surface thing for me. It really is something that matters to me. And it's again, just always such a cornerstone of what I do. And it's absolutely a cornerstone as to why Indy and I created the community. Having space to be open, to be honest, to share, to support, to feel validated in where you are in this moment in time, and to know that you can do it and be safe to do so. Again, I can go on and on, as you frequently hear me do, about how much importance there is at a time when we can feel so lonely and disconnected to know that there is a space where you can connect. So in order to learn more and to join today, you can go over to pauseontheplay.com forward slash community. As always, you know, I love being here, having this dialogue, being a part of these conversations with you, helping you to be a part of the change that you want to see. So Make sure that you go out and you do your work in the world. Take care of yourself. And until the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take and then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?